Before we begin this episode, I just wanted to remind you that last week we left you with a question that Trevor's going to share. If you haven't had a chance to listen to the last episode, go back and listen to that first, uh, and then this will make a lot more sense. So here it is. So I think we got to do a part two because I have a question that we're just going to leave people hanging with for a week because we're not going to publish these like day after each other. It's going to be a week. But the question is, so what do you say to the person who says, well, ISIS, that's the true nature of Islam? Muslims, Christians, and and the the zombie zombie apocalypse. Muslims, Christians, and the zombie apocalypse. And the zombie apocalypse. (laughs) (laughs) You know, that is, it's really bizarre because how do they, how would they even know that? Because they think they go to the Quran, they're reading the Quran in English. They're ignoring all the theories of interpretation, all the multiple interpretations that Muslims come up, and they know that they know that they know that that is the correct interpretation. Who are they to make that decision? I don't want Muslims doing that for my Bible. I'm not doing that for their Quran. Well, they probably have the correct interpretation of in, of Revelation too. So, I mean, <laughs> I mean, if we're most likely <laughs> right, most likely. Yeah. Well, I did read on Wikipedia. That uh, I'm just kidding. <laughs> so I mean, we do have to deal with the the concept of could you give us some some insights, some psychological insights? Uh, what is going on with these guys with ISIS? What is driving sort of the um, the mentality of the terrorists that are there? Because some of them are certainly theologically motivated. Um, what do you think is the process that goes on with the leadership, like Al-Qaeda and bin Laden? Like, I love how you said that it, all the paradigms have been broken, because we could say, well, it's poverty, and then you've got bin Laden, who's a multimillionaire. Oh, it's youth, and then you've got Ayman Zawahiri, who's an old dude, and you've got, uh, well, it must be, uh, you know, there's no education, but Ayman is a doctor, and so yeah. you've got all of the paradigms sort of broken. We've established there's really no profile, so what do you see going on with these guys that have chosen this radical path individually? Have you looked at any of them and thought, I could see this guy kind of having this issue? Issue. I kind of pull back farther on that one. I mean, all the way to, um, there's a wonderful book by uh, Najib Mahfouz, right? The Arab who won the first Nobel Prize in literature um, by a Muslim and um, Midak Ali. And he was looking at when Egypt, 30s and 40s, was uh, confronting Westernization. And his position was that there were two or three things that you could do. You could either go along with it and lose your soul or you could um, you could cling to Islam and be utterly irrelevant in the world and be poverty stricken, right? And um, the main character goes along goes along with the West and lives and survives, but she's represented by as a prostitute in the uh, in in the novel. The rest who don't go along take two forms: they're either killed or they retreat into the kind of fantastical world of Sufism and mystical Islam where you can retreat from reality. So neither of those three positions is very hopeful. you know. So I think the disruption of the culture with Western colonialism sometimes has contributed to the problem and disruption of um, families, disruption of the traditional interpretations of Islam, all of that has, you know, has been disrupted 
And I think it creates kind of a vacuum. And then we see all kinds of, uh, you know, things uh, uh, popping up to to give the person a sense of identity, which is Trevor's expertise, um, and then a sense of belongingness, et cetera. That's yeah. authentic for them as Muslims. It sounds like they're in lose-lose situations, and That's, that seems to be a, a theme of that process. Like, there's no winning. You know, I, I, don't, I don't fit here. I don't fit here. I just... There is nothing to lose mm, at that point. And, but there is a possibility of gaining identity, you know, and belongingness within that, the Kayla faith that they're, that they're developing, I think. So we as Christians here in the United States, we see Muslim immigrants um, probably all around us. People that listen to this podcast probably encounter Muslims or they wouldn't be listening. They're either listening because they're terribly afraid and they're yeah. probably not going to listen to another show or they're listening because <laughs> they actually care and want to reach out to Muslims. Yeah. What are some of the things that you could see uh, being helpful for us to know about sort of the the process or the psychology of being an immigrant and transferring over into this country and being where they're at now with the whole public narrative of Muslims right now? Well, I think it would be nice if we started by not making the immigrant just the other who was a problem. You know what I mean? That they're they're like the whole history of this you know wonderful country. People who saw a vision and were able to come here and actually live out their faith and and um, take care of their kids, which is what most Muslims who come here say, right? They Many of them will say they were able to practice Islam here in a way that they've never been able to in their in their own countries, and, and they do it peacefully. And what, the United States has, I think, just this wonderful corrupting influence in one way, you know? And it's it's wonderful because we... We give security, a financial stability, and all those kinds of things, which many of those individuals are wanting too. So, and they have clean, you know, they have nice homes, they have right. good schools, they have hospitals. You know, you can, you know, at least have the vision or dream of making it. You know, and um, I think there's a lot, and they and they really buy into that. And I think that's probably what drives many of the Muslims not wanting the terrorist and and why Muslims are the ones who were turning the terrorist in because they like the country, you know? Right. So when they immigrate, we kind of look at them, immigrate. We kind of look at them as uh, refugees rather than as... As yeah. we would as someone else that's immigrating. I like it that you say refugee because here's a real interesting. Some A lot of studies have been coming out with refugees from Muslim-populated countries who are suffering PTSD. Uh, a couple of the studies recently found that one of the best treatments for them, in addition to the typical psychological treatment of PTSD, is to help them learn English. Because if they learn English, they can navigate the systems in this country in a way that they're not able to do without English. So it kind of like reduces their anxiety, yeah. their daily anxiety. And makes them have access and gives them power to of some control over their lives, you know, to get help. The PTSD that you're speaking of, is it because uh, they're coming from war-torn countries? War-torn countries, right. Yeah. Okay. Do we have in, in our country enough psychologists that understand the, the cross-cultural dimensions that, that are going into to treatment? I'm assuming there's a cross-cultural dimension. I might be you know, wrongfully assuming that, but how does that go with the treatment of PTSD for a Muslim immigrant? Well, the the good news is that we have a lot of Muslim psychologists who are coming up who have trained in the United States, who know the diagnose, diagnoses and treatments, but they also have the cultural sensitivity 
um, to be able to help us do the cross-cultural work. And they're working in it. They're not, those Muslim psychologists are not in isolation from other psychiatrists, you know, and psychologists. They all jump in and help each other because we want, if there are people who are hurting, we want to help them. Right. I come from um, Korean culture, oh. and uh, it's very, very um, looked down upon, I guess, if you go to a counselor, yeah. psychologist. Is that the same thing for a Muslim that's immigrating to the U.S.? Yeah, we're finding, especially too, for the men, some of the women may be more likely to do that mm. if husbands will let them. Um, but uh, by by second, third generation, that usually has gone away. Right. They 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 are in college and they'll reach out sometimes to counselors there. It can be difficult, but it, and so there, there I think for me would be a public health kind of model where you have uh, people who will actually go into the home and help, help them. Uh, don't expect them to come. But what we find is for a lot of Arabs and Iranians, et cetera, they will come when they have physical symptoms and those physical symptoms may be psychologically motivated, right? Mm. And so if the doctor is sensitive to the physicians are sensitive to this, they can help them. Uh, go, of course, this is a medical condition, but with a psychological component to it. I might be overreaching here, but I have a question about, uh, we were talking in the last episode about uh, de-radicalization, right? Um, is it could it be that if our listeners did reach out to Muslim families, you know, did not see them as refugees, but just really tried to help enculturate, encourage, um, make them not feel so isolated, that we would be doing our part in de-radicalization as well? Yeah, I think, I think a huge, a huge help. I mean, one of the most sad stories that I've ever heard is of Sayyid Qutb, you know, who wrote the book Milestones mm -hmm. that came to the United States to study um, engineering there in Colorado, but says that while he was here, he really never had a good relationship with any Christian. Right. And so I often want, and then he goes back and helps, you know, the movement, the Muslim Brotherhood started by Hassan al-Banna. Um, I often wonder, would milestones have been written and would Sayyid Qutb have been involved in the Islamic movement that referred to the United States as the great shaitan, picked up by Ayatollah Khomeini, if he had had a decent relationship with some Christians or decent relationship with Westerners. I'm just curious if, if this correlation works, but it's interesting to think about uh, the establishment of the Muslim Brotherhood and sort of the movements coming out of Egypt and, and other places where Westernization was coming in and people felt like they had no option. It was either, you know, be okay with it, you know, join in, or you become, uh, you know, you're irrelevant or... You know, you have that lose-lose situation, and it just creates a bunch of fear, I think, and anxiety. And what I think is really ironic, and I, I may be wrong here, but I think this is very ironic, is a lot of folks here in the United States are overcome with fear because they feel like the Muslims are coming in, and they're taking over, and they're going to lose their Christianity, their freedom, they're going to have Sharia law, and it's really strange because you have almost the exact same sort of response of we're going to lose. And so what do they do? They respond with fear and hatred. Does that seem ironic at all to you? <laughs> yeah. Ironic and oh so human, you know, that, um, yeah, when you're motivated, when you're motivated fear, you do, and you feel desperate, you do these desperate, you know, you do these uh, desperate things. I think the interesting thing for me is that, um, um, the fears that they have when they're voiced are not realities. You know, so it's kind of anxiety driven. What do you mean, not reality? Well, 
I mean, this idea that that there's going to be a Sharia <clears throat> and that that's going to be implemented. I mean, I don't know where they're getting it because Muslims have brought things to the courts already, all kinds of lawsuits. And our courts have handled it without a takeover, you know, of Sharia. <laughs> we have a constitution that's pretty darn good, you know, and we have law that's in place. And when you want to bring up something and you bring it into court, we're not appealing to Sharia to make that. So it's just kind of weird um, to to be fearful of the Sharia. Now, if, you know, I don't know, 100% of the United States becomes Muslim, well, then you've got other issues going on, right? Yeah, something else too has late. happened too way, <laughs> way long ago, right? <laughs> yeah, we're, we're talking about 3 million people, not... Uh, yeah. The 10 million or 20 million or 30 million that we've heard uh, kind of spouted out there, the the research shows that there's probably less than 3 million Muslims living in the United States. And as you pointed out, most of them absolutely love America, love democracy, love the freedoms and have no interest in Sharia. In fact, they're probably here because they escaped it. Yeah. And and we're going to catch those that are kind of crazy, and, and sometimes we won't. And we will have some negative things happen in this country. But that's going to be true of all kinds of groups. But if honestly, if we look at the group that has perpetrated the most terrorist acts in the United States, it's abortion clinic bombs. All right, so this show wouldn't be possible without sponsors. And at this point in the show is where if you want to partner with us, we would put your ad. So if you want to be a part of the show, you, you want like, to partner with us. You like what we're doing. You want to be on our team, what have you. Bring this show to the world. Then email us and let us know. That's the biggest one. Wow. You know, we don't call them terrorists because there's a part of us that says maybe they were justified. Um, well, and they look like the most of the people that read the news. I was going to say and, like yeah. us. Howard can't say us because he's Korean, right. but they don't look they don't look like me. <laughs> there you just want to say that right now. Well, I no. mean, but it is true that if you were just a profile based on numbers terrorist here in the United States, it would probably be a young white male. I'm assuming just based on the terrorist activity yeah. that's happened, and the profile doesn't work because there's a lot of one young white males in right. this country, and so that's we haven't right. done that. We don't do that, yeah. and. And we would say, oh, but, but Islam is religiously motivated. What do you think abortion clinic bombers are? Yeah, religiously motivated. Yeah. Wow. Well, one last question. It has to do with the emotions because that's your field. Yep. And I've been told I don't have them, so no, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, you're not kidding. It's you have true. a Y chromosome. That's, that's right. Why so why <laughs> is it, uh, Matthew, that when we share the gospel, we get... Uh, so emotionally charged if somebody sort of doesn't accept our response or our faith or if we're sharing like it seems like we just destroy our witness sometimes because we get all riled up they'll question our faith and then suddenly we insult them or their faith and it turns into a fight and why is that i think it's because we're idolaters um and the reason is it doesn't happen with me so i'm not a night no i'm just kidding (laughs) (laughs) yeah but i think the 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 core of it is kind of this irrational belief of demandingness that they must accept the gospel. Why? Because, well, there we depart from our theology. We we lose the doctrine of free will, right? 
They can't have free will. They must accept the gospel. And if they don't, it's terrible, horrible, and awful. I can't stand it. And they're no good. So that neat little misery package and and package of irrational beliefs, which I think is all idolatry, um, you know, I think creates that creates that frustration and fear and and um, ridiculous behavior. I mean, think about it. Demandingness is that somebody must accept something because I think that they should. Well, that's holding yourself up as God. That it's terrible, horrible, and awful if they don't. That is making uh, their response of not accepting it. Uh, giving them complete control over our emotions when only God should have that kind of power. Uh, that I can't stand it. Oh, that is really making a God of that person's response to the gospel. And the funny thing is they're standing it while they're saying they can't stand it. And then that it, you know, um, that it'll always be there. Or it'll never get any different. I just call that false prophecy. So um, I think it's all stems from uh, from idolatry that gets expressed in really, whacked out um, uh, irrational beliefs. And when you hold these irrational beliefs, you have unhelpful emotions and self-sabotaging behaviors. And that's what we call bad missions. So when we feel this coming on, what should we do? Snap out of it. Snap out. Stop it. (laughs) One word of advice. Stop it. Just stop it. Just stop it. Just share the gospel and be okay with the fact that the whether or not a person responds to the gospel has nothing to do with you but the Holy Spirit, and then yeah, you should not feel so overwhelmed if they don't. Exactly. I think instead of the demand, why why not try a godly desire, a wish, a want, a hope, right? Okay, how's that work? Well, instead of saying they must be a particular age, you know, I I hope they do because it's in their long-term best interest eternally to do that, but... God gave them free will. I'm going to do what I can. And if they don't accept it, it's not great for them in the eternal, but, you know, it doesn't diminish meaning, purpose, and potential happiness for me. I don't, that's just not what I hear growing up. No, of course not. I mean, maybe I just grew <laughs> up too late, or I, you and I are five years apart, but, I mean, still, you probably heard this. I mean, not this, but you've heard a different way of evangelization growing up. I mean, people go to hell and they burn there and we have to save them. And I think what we were taught, even maybe some in, in our YWAM days, because we, we did evangelism explosion and those models, and I know how much Matthew loves models. Mm-hmm. Um, so the uh, <laughs> what we were taught was probably more of a hunting evangelism tactic. Oh, yeah. You know, you go out to the mall and you look for maybe the weakest. The, the one that's the ready. Lone, yeah, really? The, right. the one that's kind of wandering and looks kind of lonely. Or the scariest um, one, either one. That's what I was taught to. Yeah, I mean, just that isolate. And you go over and you, you preach at them. And if they don't respond, that's really not on you. It's more you just, you did your job. You shared the gospel and then you kind of notched the belt. And that, that was evangelism. Oh, that's sick. Yeah, it wasn't real <laughs> effective. Yeah. <clears throat> But then the was, caribou approach. Just go for the weak caribou. That's that's what I yeah yeah, yeah down, hunting right? hunting. Yeah. <laughs> so I guess the fishing evangelism scenario would be more <laughs> more that you actually continue to actually strive for being able to present something that would be of of great value to the person or fish. Should I not be comparing people and fish? You're a psychologist. Is there some Freudian thing going know. on here? I know you're not a Freudian. It, but... it sounds deep within you, Trevor, yeah. and I'm not ready. Well, <laughs> I, I dropped. I dropped. <laughs> we're, two... we're not going to deal with that here, brother. I lost two cell phones uh, hey. to the lake, and and uh, Matthew said, you know, Freud would have a field day with you <laughs> on the subconscious level. You keep throwing your phone into the lake, so 
that, that's not subconscious, man. You, you hate your phone, so there, I don't. Yeah. I don't there there's nothing go. hidden about that. But. Yeah, but I think our evangelism strategies are quite. Uh, the, at least the older ones are quite broken, and we know it. And what I've really been encouraged by is the the millennials coming up. They're relational. Um, they they use a relational model. Um, much more, I don't even know if I'd call it a model, they're just relational in, in a sense of uh, getting to know people and really sitting and caring about people and loving people, kind of like Carl Medeiros talks about in uh, his book. Um, it's more about being present and actually demonstrating the, the demonstrating Christ and how you interact with people. And when you're sharing the gospel, it's not like this sort of you're just trying to move on to the next person, but you actually care about the person. Whether or not they respond doesn't matter. You actually care and love the person because they're valuable. Yeah. I like that. You know, uh, another place where I've been getting it lately is Eugene Peterson. Mm. I mean, I'm not a big Eugene Peterson reader, but I was given a book by uh, Slant, which was just fantastic because it's looking at... um, three roles of Jesus as teacher, preacher, and then also as someone who just hung out with people as he's walking across Samaria, right? And I thought that's a great comparison, walking across Samaria in a foreign land, right? Hanging out with people, having nice conversations. I think that's great. So that even if the Samaritans are enemies, he's still hanging out with them and having really nice, nice conversations. Many, Most of us as Christians are not going to be teachers and preachers, but we can hang out. And I think some of the best work we see in gospel is when people are ha- hanging out and being real with uh, with real people, not turning them into caricatures, that kind of thing. I wanted to bring up, though, that I think even in our old missions, there was always a, a, a conflicting narrative. One is that we had to save them, but then the other one is that only the Holy Spirit can save them. Well, make up your mind. You know what I mean? And they would flip between the narrative whenever it was in their best interest. You know, if I failed, well, it was the Holy Spirit. You know what I mean? But if they, they converted, I, I led them to the Lord. So it's very interesting how, yeah, we, I could, totally agree. how we could play with those narratives, right? <laughs> That's it for this week with Dr. Matthew Stone. If you like this show... Please pass it on to your friends. Also, uh, write reviews on iTunes. It really helps. Uh, People just check us out on iTunes. And if they see a lot of ratings and reviews and read a lot about it, uh, they're they're more likely to try it. And that really helps us because we really want to get the message out of what we're kind of doing here. Uh, So, again, thank you guys for listening, and I'll see you next week.